Hey, I'm Brandon, the online campus pastor here at Big Valley Grace, and thank you for taking a moment to watch this message. It is the teaching portion from one of our live weekend worship gatherings, and we have those every single weekend here online and in person, and I just want to extend an invitation to you to join us. We're just a local church, local body of believers, and we would love if you would join us uh, on a weekend upcoming here sometime soon. Uh, but as we get headed into this message together, a couple things just want to point you to. One is a connect card. If there's any way that, that we can pray for you, if you want to contact us, that connect card form is just a really great way uh, to let us know that you're joining us. Any next steps you want to take, stuff like that is right on there. Also, if you want to bring in offering, a worshipful gift uh, to King Jesus, you can do that right on our give page on our website or via text. So hope you enjoy the unpacking, the unfolding of the word as we look at it together. Well, hello, good morning, welcome to Big Valley Grace Community Church, welcome to everyone who's right here in the Worship Center on the Modesto campus, welcome to everybody who's joining us live right now in our online campus, we're glad to be with you in whatever room you're in. If it's your first time at Big Valley Grace Community Church this weekend, I want you to know, we're really glad you're here. We're really glad you're here, welcome. We hope that today is a great day for you as we've come together with the church family. Thank you, my friend that we're coming together to worship the Lord and to be in his word and to, for people to use their gifts and bring gifts to the Lord, to serve, to be in fellowship with one another. If it's your first time, we're so glad you're here and we hope that today is an incredible, incredible moment for you. We're going through the Gospel of Mark together as a church family. If you wanna take your Bible and turn to the Gospel of Mark, we're gonna be in chapter 11 today. And if you don't have a Bible, we wanna solve that problem. And the way that we can do that is here on the Modesto campus, we have this room, it's called the altar room. It's a room we pray for people in after the gathering. If you need prayer today, please come to the altar room. We would love to pray for you. But we have Bibles there, they're nice Bibles, they're free Bibles. Your church family here has purchased them to be able to give them to you as a gift. And so please come and obtain a Bible. We want everyone to have a copy of the Word of God. If you're with us online, reach out to Pastor Brandon Peterson, our online campus pastor, and he and the team will we'll send you a Bible. We, we want everyone to have a Bible to be able to read God's Word together. Now, before we get into our text, I wanna circle back around to a few things we mentioned already. And, and the first is, I wanna say thank you to everyone who served at Kids Campus. You know, we call it Kids Campus because we take the campus and we transform the entire campus for the purpose of just serving kids all week. But that doesn't happen without people volunteering to serve and to use their time, to sacrifice time and to use their talents, to give their talents in service to the Lord. And there were so many of you serving. And I just wanna say, great job. You did an incredible job. It was an awesome week. And it is a week that is an environment that is very friendly for children to come and to meet Christ and to be discipled and for people in the community. There were so many people here who were families who were not yet plugged into the ministry of Big Valley Grace Community Church. And Kids Campus often is a very first step for families to get plugged in at Big Valley Grace. And so you might be here right now and the way that you came to be involved with Big Valley Grace was through Kids Campus. And if so, we wanna say welcome. We're really glad that you're here. Thank you to everyone who was serving. We do have a fun photo to show you of me and one of the kids. This is a picture of two Joels. 
And one of the Joels has a painted on beard and painted on glasses. And I thought, this is great. Even at kids' campus, we're identifying future leaders. This is awesome. So what a fun moment. And you know, in the video, you saw, you know, the rotten tomatoes and the porridge getting poured all over me and, and, and Pastor Aaron. Why would we do something crazy like that? Well, here's why. Because we gave him a challenge to memorize scripture. And on Thursday in this room, 380 plus kids' voices out loud said out loud the scripture that they had memorized from the book of Ephesians about the armor of God. It was incredible. And so we just wanted to celebrate and have fun, give them a reward, so we did some crazy stuff. But it's amazing to hear children quoting out loud God's word. What an incredible, incredible thing. So in addition to that, look at what these kids have done. You know, they've set the standard here, right? They went out and they got shoes for our Kicks for Kids program. And we wanna make sure that children in our community have shoes to start school. And the, the children have set the pace. They, they have you know, gone ahead as the leaders and now it's time for us to show up, right? And so we need to do that. Let, uh, my challenge to you is to go and to obtain a new pair of shoes that you would wanna give as a gift to a child in our community. My wife showed me a picture this week. It was of the big red you know, Target grocery cart, and it was just full of shoes. And what my wife and I have tried to think of is, hey, we're going to buy shoes for our children anyway. How about at the same time we buy shoes for our children, we think about how we can buy shoes for some other children also. And so I just wanna extend that challenge to you. Even if you don't have children in your home, that you would consider how can we be a part of purchasing shoes? So bring them in, the kids have set the pace, they've done a great job, and so now let's show up as the rest of the body of Christ and, and let's take care of this need in our community. Additionally, we have some resources I wanna point out and we have uh, been making them available to our church family. They're interviews that I have done with a, a number of pastors from our church, directors from our church, pastors from other churches and in our community. And those are all available online on a YouTube channel that we set up. You just go to YouTube and you just type in my name, Joel Boone, and there's a channel there. There's a significant number of resources, especially regarding the Supreme Court decision regarding Roe versus Wade being overturned. We want to equip our church family. And so please, utilize those, take advantage of those. They are there for the purpose of really building into our church with resources. All right, as we take our attention now to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11 and 12, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. And prior to this, Jesus has already communicated three times very clearly to his disciples that he was going to suffer, that he was going to be killed by the hands of men, and that he was gonna uh, be beaten, flogged, spat on, um, whipped. But every time he shared this, he also shared that he would rise again. So he communicates to his disciples very clearly that he's going to go to Jerusalem, that he's going to suffer, he's going to die on the cross, and he's gonna be badly beaten in that process, badly um, brutalized, really. But it doesn't end there because he's going to rise three days later. And so he's talked about this a number of times with his disciples. When we get to Mark chapter 11 and chapter 12, he's now entering into that process. 
At the beginning of chapter 11, we have what we would refer to as the triumphal entry or Palm Sunday. We've looked at this passage many times in the history of our church. You know, every year when Palm Sunday comes around, we often will teach from this passage or reference this passage. So this is a passage we've looked at, but it's, it's when he's coming into Jerusalem heading towards the cross. And what we see in Mark chapter 11 and 12, which was from our reading plan this week, and if you want one of these bookmarks, they're available out in the information center, or you can get this online. You can also have it be texted to your phone every day, the reading plan. But this week's reading plan included Mark chapter 11 and 12. And in that, we see as Jesus comes into Jerusalem, what does he find? What does he find when he gets there? And the passage that we're going to look at is right after the triumphal entry. And the reason that I chose this passage is because it has in it an illustration that is so different. And it's an illustration about a fig tree. The fig tree is at the beginning of the passage. Then we see something take place. And then we come back to the fig tree. And so we're going to enter into it together. In Mark chapter 11, we're going to look at verse 12 through verse 25. It says in verse 12, on the following day, so the following day past the the day of the triumphal entry, or Palm Sunday, on the following day in history, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. Jesus was hungry. Now, I'll stop right there just to make note. You may wonder, can Jesus really relate to my life? Does he really know what I experience? Well, do you ever get hungry? Because in this moment, we see Jesus get hungry. It's a clear picture of his humanity. In fact, the fact that I've said hungry multiple times right now, some of you now actually are hungry now. And you're not actually listening to anything else I say because you're now thinking, which restaurant do I wanna go to when this is done to take care of my hungry problem, right? And in this moment, it's a cool picture where we see he is a human. He has humanity. He got Hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. So he sees a fig tree, and a fig tree is a source of food. And he went to the fig tree to see if there might be anything on the tree that he could eat because he's hungry. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Now, some really obvious questions need to be brought up in this moment. If it's not the season for figs, why was Jesus going to the tree knowing that it wasn't the season for figs? Had he never seen a fig tree before? Did he not know when the season, look, fig trees were common. He knew when the season for figs was, right? But clearly, knowing that it's not the season for figs, clearly he had experience with fig trees to know that even though it wasn't the season for figs, he still could come to a fig tree to find something to eat on it. Now, how that all works, maybe there's a bud, maybe there's something that's edible on it, but it's not like he didn't understand what a fig tree was, and it's not like maybe he hadn't ever done this before. So he comes to a fig tree, and he fully expects to find on the fig tree something edible. It says he's hungry, and he's going to the fig tree. Though, even though, it's not the season for figs. So pretty interesting that he does this. And then verse 14, it says, And he said to it, not him, not her, he said to it. He's now going to talk to the tree. 
This is gonna be interesting. What does he say to the tree? May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Okay, so Jesus is hungry. It's not the season for figs. He, it's not the first time he'd been around a fig tree. He knew what he was doing. He came looking for something to eat on it. He finds nothing. And now he speaks to the fig tree. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Jesus talks to a tree. Now, in this moment, I would encourage you not to take the fact that Jesus talked to a tree to some weird place, all right? Does he talk to a tree? Yes, it said. He said something to the tree, but don't take and run with that with some crazy thought or whatever. He says to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples are right there, and they hear him. I wonder what they're thinking. Did you hear the boss? He's talking to a tree. What is happening, right? Amazing. Now, we're going to circle back around to the fig tree because the passage circles back around to the fig tree. But before we do that, we've got to keep going in the passage. And as we get to this next part of the passage, it's important for us to understand that the passage we're going to look at is full of action. And, and Jesus is full of action. And as we walk through this passage, we're going to see some incredible actions that Jesus takes. And the fig tree is both on the front end and on the back end of this scene with great action. So action number one, Jesus enters. This may seem insignificant as I explain it right now. Action number one, Jesus enters. But as we look at this, I think you'll find it's very significant. In verse 15, it says, and they came to Jerusalem. So they're coming in and out of Jerusalem. It's, it's the last week, at, you know, heading to the cross, and they're coming in and out of Jerusalem. He comes to Jerusalem and he entered the temple. The temple, a physical building structure in Jerusalem. A very specific building that is for the purpose of worship. It was the place of worship that God instructed the nation of Israel to have. Not only is it a place but there was a way in which God wanted to be worshiped in the temple. And God was very specific about how he was to be worshiped in the temple in Jerusalem. And Jesus enters the temple. Now, I think it's very clear in this passage, it's speaking about a physical location in Jerusalem, the physical temple. But before we continue on, I want to make note about something because the New Testament gives a teaching about the temple of the Lord. And I want us to understand, maybe be reminded or maybe learn what is that teaching so that we can have that in mind as we walk through this passage. The first place that I'm going to look is in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, it asks a question. And the question is this, do you not know that you are God's temple? What a great question. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? What can we learn? We can learn from this that someone who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ and has trusted in Jesus as Lord God and Savior from sin, the Father God, you know, through Christ, sends the Holy Spirit of God to live in the believer. And a person who is a follower of Jesus has the Holy Spirit of God in them if they are redeemed and regenerated unto salvation by the work of Jesus. The Holy Spirit of God lives in them. And so do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? 
the passage is talking about a physical temple in Jerusalem, but the New Testament teaches us that we are to understand that our own lives, as we have been redeemed by the Lord, our own lives are a temple for the Lord. Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, same book, a little further on, a few chapters later, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Jesus is entering into Jerusalem. The very purpose of why he's entering into Jerusalem is to head to the cross. He's heading to the cross, and the purpose of the cross is to die for payment for our sin, that we might have salvation. On the cross, he pays for our sin. He's resurrected to new life three days later, and in his resurrection, he conquers death itself. And as Jesus has both paid for sin and overcome death, as we are in Christ, we have the opportunity for our sins to be taken care of and for us to have resurrection life in Jesus. And that came at a price. And it's the very price of why Jesus is in Jerusalem in the passage we're looking at. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The New Testament very clearly teaches we're to see ourselves as, as a temple that God is living in. What about us collectively as a group? Well, in Ephesians chapter two, verse 18, it says this. For through him, through Jesus, we both, both as Gentile and Jew, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're a fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. So lots of terms being used here. Citizens, saints, members, household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. We'll talk about Jesus being the cornerstone in a minute. In whom the whole structure being joined together, listen to this, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So not only as the individual believer are we called a temple, but together collectively as the body of believers, we're being built into a temple of the Lord. The Lord inhabits his people the Spirit of God is in us as individuals, but the Spirit of God is leading, you know, Christ is the head of the body and the Spirit of God indwells the people. It's pretty incredible. So as we look at this teaching that is about the actual temple in Jerusalem, I'd like us to keep in mind that as a follower of Christ, the Lord is calling me a temple also, but also as the body of Christ, the church, the body of believers, we're referred to as the temple also, that we would keep that in mind as we walk through it. So Jesus enters. Action number two, Jesus removes. And this passage moves very quickly. There's a lot of action. And the second one is Jesus removes. It says in verse 15, and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. So Jesus enters, and once he enters the temple, now he removes from the temple. Now it says drive out. Now drive out sounds like a very forceful term that he's driving it out. Now, you may not use the term drive out very much. You may use a term like drive up, like, hey, you're driving me up the wall. But he is driving out those who should not be there in that moment, people who needed to leave. There are people who are in the temple and they need to get gone. And so he comes into the temple and he drives them out. 
This is a very forceful moment. What do we know about them? Well, one, those who sold, and two, those who bought. There was something about those who sold and those who bought, they did not belong there. They needed to be removed from the temple. We'll learn more as we go through this. But I'll make note about this. I'm so thankful that God loves me so much that as he enters into my life, the things that need to be removed, he drives out. I am so grateful that God loves me so much that when he enters into my life and he identifies something that is in my life that should not be there, that he drives it out. And sometimes that happens very forcefully. But I'm so glad that he loves me so much not to leave me in the same condition with the crummy stuff in my life that needs to get gone, that needs to be out, it needs to be removed. Whether in my thinking or in my heart or in my actions and that our God cares about us to have that stuff be driven out of our lives. And I just wanna invite you that you would welcome the Lord to identify in your life the things that need to be removed and you would welcome him driving those things out. I confess to you, the Lord has been in a continual process of driving out and driving out and driving out and driving out and driving out things in my life for a very long time. And I am grateful he's doing it and I imagine it won't stop until the day I'm with him in glory. And I welcome him to continue doing it to continue driving out of my life that which should not be there. And in this case, in the physical temple in Jerusalem, there were those who sold and those who bought and they didn't belong there and Jesus drives them out. Goes on, action number three, Jesus reveals. So Jesus enters, he removes, and he reveals. It says in verse 15, this is one very action-packed verse. It says in verse 15, and he overturned the tables of the money changer. He overturned them. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Wow, what can we learn here? Well, one, we see that there are tables and we see that there's seats and I, I, I hear tables and seats. I'm like, okay, they're set up for business. These people are set, they have workstations. They're set up for business. They're they're those who sold, those who bought. They're money changers. We find out a little bit more information. They're money changers. We find out a little bit more information. They're selling pigeons. So there's a business operation that's going on here. And Jesus shows up and he overturns the tables and the seats. Now, I'm imagining some things. I'm imagining money changers and that there is coins. And I'm imagining a temple floor that is hard. And as coins are flying off a table that's been overturned, I'm imagining what is the sound of that and how big of a scene is happening in this moment. Additionally, I'm imagining pigeons and what happens when tables and seats are overturned. What are those pigeons doing in this moment? And in my imagination, I'm thinking, man, this became a scene real quick real fast, very loud, heads are turning. This did not go unnoticed. It's loud, it's disruptive. 
He comes in and he reveals there is something in the temple and it should not be there. And the process of Jesus revealing it is very, very disruptive. People who are, should not be doing the things that they are doing at the time and the location that they're doing them. Now, when I think about that, for my own life, I'm so grateful that the Lord loves me so much that when I'm doing something I should not be doing at that time or at that location or ever, that the Lord would be so kind to reveal it to me. Why? Because one, I may have been ignoring him, or two, I may be blind in my sin. And in Jesus revealing his truth and what he would want me to be doing and not want me to be doing, that's an incredibly kind thing that he does to make me aware. What is it that needs to change in my life? And it just might be that when he does that in my life, it's very, very disruptive. And this scene is very disruptive. It reminds me of a passage in Matthew 21, 42 through 44. And there's a, a great illustration about, or a great teaching about the cornerstone. And in Matthew 21, 42 through 44, it says, Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. That sounds bad, but I think it actually gets worse. It says, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. I go, wow, okay. So as I interact with Jesus the cornerstone, there's kind of two outcomes. If I, if I fall on him, I'm broken. If you know, the cornerstone falls on me, I'm crushed. I, I, I think I wanna go with broken. I wanna, I wanna be broken. As I interact with the Lord and he reveals in me the things that need to change, as he reveals sin in my life that needs to be driven out and how my life needs to change, I wanna be in a place to be broken before the Lord, a place that is of humility, to recognize he is entering the scene, he is removing what needs to be gone, and he's revealing what he wants for my life. And I think that I wanna encourage us to welcome humility into our life and to welcome the fact that Jesus might just decide to flip some tables. And some of you right now might be experiencing Jesus has been flipping your tables. And to welcome that, the action of God. Next, in action number four, Jesus restricts. And in Jesus restricts, in this action, again, it is incredibly kind. It is so kind what Jesus does here in this scene. In verse 16 it says, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So he enters the temple, he removes from the temple what should not be there, he reveals what should be, you know, what should be the scene, he reveals that these things should not be there and there's a different way, but then he restricts. He doesn't let it happen again. 
He puts up a boundary. The discipline of the Lord is in this scene. And he would not allow anyone else to carry anything through the temple. He puts up some guardrails. And I see this as the very kind protection of God, that he would restrict the same thing from happening again. The Lord and his restrictions, the Lord and his boundaries, the Lord and his discipline. You know, when I think about that, I think about a passage that's been very dear to me. It's Psalm 16, five and six. I'll turn there, Psalm 16, five and six. And, and for a long time, this is a passage that's been an encouragement to me as I've thought about how the Lord decides what I'm gonna be involved in and the Lord decides what I'm not gonna be involved in. It says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup, you hold my lot. The lines, speaking of the boundary lines, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I've thought about, you know, this text is really in light of how the Lord blessed the nation of Israel and he gave them land and, you know, that was all divided up and, and you know, everybody had kind of had a portion and they, and they would refer to the Lord as my portion. The Lord's my portion. You know, for a long time, that's been really special to me to realize whatever the Lord has allowed in my life, he's drawn some lines around my life and it's what he has for me. And the boundary he's, he's put on my life and the discipline he's put around my life, it's for my good. It's meant to be pleasant in my life that I would see and really rejoice that God has put some restrictions around me and that I would really find freedom in that. So in this passage, we go on to the next action. This is the last action that I'll point out from this text, but that Jesus instructs. He doesn't just come in and blow the place up and then walk out. He does blow the place up, not like the term blow it up, but you know what I mean. He, he makes a big scene and he's, he's very disruptive, but now he's gonna bring teaching. Why did he do it? And it says in verse 17, and he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written? So he points back to the scriptures. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. So Jesus enters the temple and he responds to what he finds by removing and revealing and restricting. And now he's gonna teach them, this is what I was supposed to find when I came into the temple. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. We learned three things. One, it belongs to the Lord. My house, my house, it's his house. And as we think about our own lives, that is a humbling and sobering thought to think of. Do I recognize that my life belongs to the Lord? When we think about us as a church family, a body of believers, do we recognize Christ as the head and that we belong to him? Remember, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. It shall be called the house of prayer. There's a reputation that the temple of the Lord is supposed to have. And in the temple in Jerusalem, it was supposed to have a reputation of the temple of, of a, you know, a house of prayer. What about for our own lives? How are we embracing prayer? How are we embracing prayer as a church family, that we'd be known as a house of prayer, a people of prayer? And then there's a group that's identified, and it's for all the nations, that all the nations would be included in this. It's his house, it has a reputation of prayer, and everyone is to be included. Everyone is to be welcomed in to find the Lord, to find Jesus, to find God, to find salvation. 
Very instructive. But then he gives a contrast. But you have made it a den of robbers. What a contrast to house of prayer. And now that we have the title den of robbers, it's very instructive to us to understand all the actions he just took. He calls it a den of robbers. There was those who were buying and those who were selling. There were the money changers. There were those who sold pigeons. And he gives them now a title. It is a den of robbers. When Jesus entered into the temple, he should have found a house of prayer, but instead he finds a den of robbers. And he acts boldly. He acts with great boldness. In verse 18, and the chief priest and the scribe heard it and they were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. So the religious leaders are there and they hear what he says and what is their response? They want to destroy him because they know he's talking about them. They're running the house, the den of robbers. And now he speaks this and they want to destroy him. It says when evening came, they went out of the city. So they're going in and out of the city on this week, in and out of Jerusalem. Verse 20, as they passed by in the morning, so it's the next day, it's now morning time, they saw the fig tree's back. Cool, all right, so they saw the fig tree and the fig tree was withered away to its roots. What? Jesus was hungry, he looked for the fig tree, it wasn't the season for figs, he still expected to find something to eat, he finds nothing, he says to it, you know, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. They come the next day, the fig tree withered away. Peter doesn't want to miss the opportunity, so he speaks up. He remembers what happened. He said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Do you remember what you said? Do you remember how you were hungry and then you were hangry? Do you remember that, Jesus? And then you, you, know, then you said something to the tree, and you said, the fig tree, you know, like no one's going to ever eat from you again? Look what happened. It's withered. The disciples are like, what is going on? Now, I find it really interesting. They're asking about that, and they're not asking about the episode at the temple, but that's okay. They're asking about the fig tree, and Jesus now responds to them. And in Jesus' response to the disciples, it's very instructive for us how we can respond to the great action that we see from Jesus in, in this passage. One is that we would respond to the action of Jesus with faith. Respond to the action of Jesus with faith. He begins in verse 22 to reply to Peter, and he says, he answered them, so Peter's speaking on behalf of the group, have faith in God. Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Wow. So they, they see a tree that withers, and now Jesus is talking about Mountains can move. Have faith in God. And as I began to think about that, I go, okay, we're to respond to the action of Jesus with faith. Have faith in God. Wow. What am I asking God for? Do I really want to see the tree withered? Is that really what, I mean, that would be cool, but is that really what I'm going after? Do I really want to see the mountains? You know, I wouldn't mind the ocean be relocated to my front porch, but, you know, is that really what I'm going after? Is that really the big thing I'm asking? I began to think, and I, I, I realized this. I'm asking God for way bigger things than trees being withered and mountains being moved because I'm asking for God to transform lives. I am asking for souls to be redeemed from the darkness 
of the kingdom of evil into the kingdom of light. I am asking for marriages that are completely blown up right now to be restored in Jesus Christ. I am asking for parents who are not talking with their children, they are not in communication with their children, to be reunited, and for families who are being destroyed to come back together. I'm asking for people to be healed. I'm asking for big stuff. And as I realize that, I go, you know what? Trees withering and mountain move, that seems like small fries and small potatoes in, in comparison to the things I'm asking for. What are you asking for? If God answered every prayer that you have prayed so far today, and he answered it right now, what would be true? If God answered every prayer that you prayed for someone to come to know Jesus Christ so far today, and he answered it right now, what would be true? Ask and ask big lives to be transformed by Jesus, that we would respond to the incredible action of Jesus with prayer. That's what he says next in verse 24. He says, therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. There are people that I have been praying for for a very long time that God would get them. Go get them, God. You go get them. And then when you get them, you do whatever you want to do with them, but you go get them. They need to be gotten by you now. And I've prayed and I've prayed and I've prayed and it hasn't happened yet. Don't give up. Keep praying. Keep asking for God to do what seems impossible. For God to do, you know what? That could never happen. Yes, it can. Because God can move mountains. And whatever the obstacle is that you face, that you think is in the way of the thing that you believe that God would wanna have happen in your life, he can pick that mountain up and he can throw it into the ocean because God is in the business of changing lives. He transforms lives from the kingdom of evil into the kingdom of holiness, from out of the grip of Satan into the hands of the Father. God changes lives and to not give up, and to keep praying, and to keep asking him to do something big and something wonderful in the situation that you look at and go, it's impossible. He goes on, and we can respond to the action of Jesus with forgiveness. He finishes in verse 25, and he says, whenever you stand praying, forgive, and if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. God, who am I holding a grudge against? God, who am, I, who am I bitter against? Who am I sowing seeds of bitterness in my heart against? God, who have I been unwilling to forgive? Lord, would you help me? Would you help me to stop holding the grudge? Would you help me to be willing to forgive? Would you help to rip out all those places of bitterness? And that's probably gonna be disruptive. God, would you do that? Would you do that? Lord, would you help me? So I come to this passage, and again, I come back, and I go, why the fig tree? Why the fig tree? We see the fig tree, we see the temple, we see the fig tree, we see the instructions, why the fig tree? Well, I come back to that, and I go, you know, when Jesus enters into Jerusalem, it's the nation of God. It is the chosen people of God. And as he enters in, what does he find? He finds a people who are not bearing fruit for God. And it starts with the religious leaders. 
they were a den of robbers. And as Jesus enters town, their response is they want to destroy him. And I think the fig tree is an illustration about the religious leaders. They were not bearing fruit for God. And Jesus was right in expecting to find fruit in their lives when he came. But he found nothing. I think the illustration of the fig tree is really helpful to see it in light that Jesus came to find fruit in the lives of people and he didn't find it in the religious leaders. But then there's the disciples and to the disciples he says, have faith, keep praying and pray big, pray even bigger and be forgiving. And when Jesus enters the scene of your life, you're gonna respond in one of those two ways. You are either gonna respond where you wanna destroy the work of Jesus or you are gonna respond with humility to say, help me to have faith. God, help me to pray for what you wanna do and help me to forgive. And I'd encourage you to respond in this way as Jesus enters onto the scene of your life that you would respond to him with faith in prayer and forgiveness. Let's stand together as we close. Father God, Lord, thank you for your word. Your word is amazing. Your word is totally sufficient. And as we come to your word, it points us to you, Father, and you are everything we need. It points us to your son, Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord, and he is everything we need. It points us to your Holy Spirit, and your Holy Spirit is everything we need. It points us to your grace, and your grace is enough. Your grace is enough for every situation. And so, God, I want to say thank you. Thank you that we have your word. And, Lord, would you help us to respond to the action of God in our life, that we would respond in faith, we would respond prayerfully, and that you would help us be a people who forgive because we have been forgiven. May you be glorified in us as individuals and in us as a body of believers, your church. And I pray this in Jesus' name and all God's family said, amen.